Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I'm working on my next book. So in season four, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to explore how companies are translating their decarbonization aspirations into action. Now, this is really fun because I today got to speak with Chase Lockmiller and Coley Kavnis, who are co-founders of Crusoe Energy Systems. They're really working at the interface of traditional oil and gas and the energy future. So um, let me tell you first about Chase. He has a master's in computer science from Stanford, my alma mater undergraduate degrees in math and physics uh, from MIT and experience as a quantitative researcher at multiple firms. Cully has an MBA from the University of Oxford and a bachelor's in geology from Middlebury College. So he also has financial and leadership experience in oil and gas. They founded Crusoe in 2018. And what Crusoe does is they divert natural gas flares into generators to power crypto mining data centers. Um, so it's a way to mitigate flaring. They're also doing a bunch of other really cool stuff, diversifying their business and their significant ability to mitigate impact. You're gonna hear about that on today's show. In full disclosure, I've been an advisor uh, to Crusoe since 2018. So I also um, share some pride in the work that they're doing. You can learn more about Cully and Chase in our show notes. And now it's my pleasure to share this conversation with you. Well, Chase and Cully, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. And thanks for having us. We're thrilled to be here. We're excited to be here. Great. So I would love to hear about how both of you are thinking about the role of Crusoe in the energy transition. You're at this really interesting interface between oil and gas, between emissions, between tech and ESG is a driving force. How are you all thinking about this? Sure. I think, uh, you know, Crusoe has a pretty unique position within the overall energy transition. We, we really view it as a uh, there's going to be multiple big opportunities throughout this whole transition for society um, as we sort of transition away from being mostly a fossil fuel powered society and all the benefits that we've come to know and appreciate that you know have improved human quality of life over the last 150 years that have resulted from that into a uh, more carbon-free powered future. And uh, we, we really view it as like two major opportunities. One is kind of, you know, reducing the emissions from existing fossil fuel production and trying to figure out ways to uh, produce oil and gas that, you know, we're going to need for the next few decades in a, in a way that has a, a smaller footprint on the climate. And that's really what we've tried to accomplish with our digital flare mitigation technology, where we're able to, you know, reduce the emissions compared to flaring by 62% on CO2 equivalent. And, you know, we think that's that's a really important component to the energy transition because it buys us more time uh, during this uh, transition period and, and sort of extends that climate runway. Um, and then the second big opportunity we, we really see is that, you know, Crusoe is building this flexible computing technology that is able to work with renewable energy producers uh, to create more economic outcomes for them in a way that we can be sort of the, the, the primary purchaser of off-peak power production and accelerate the development and incentivize more, more development of renewable projects in a faster capacity, which sort of helps us transition our grid to a more carbon-free powered grid in a, in a faster way. So those are kind of like the two two levers that we really try to hit on. 
I love how quickly the company has evolved from a, a really a, a flare gas a mitigation provider option to this idea of various kinds of energy solutions in the same way that we need all the tools in the toolbox. So obviously you're very dynamic. The space is very dynamic. Tell us about what you think the key characteristics you all need to have as leaders to be so flexible as things are changing and what you're looking for is you're, I mean, you're very quickly building out your team. What kind of characteristics are you looking for in your, in the leaders you're bringing in? Jason, I can, I can try this one. Maybe we can trade back and forth. You know, Jason, I've spent a lot of time trying to build a cohesive culture here at Crusoe. And I think we, we can talk a little bit more about that because it's interesting to blend together the oil field with the tech industry and certain elements of the finance industry and three very different cultures that we've you know, brought together. But to do that, you know, your question around what are the key characteristics of a leader, you know, I'd say articulating the vision and the direction of the company so that everybody can kind of get on the same page and we're all moving forward together is a really key part of that. Being a magnet for talent, I would say, is probably the most important or one of the most important things it has to do with articulating the vision. It's, I think we've seen that the more we can clearly explain why what we're doing is important and good for the world, the more we see that the top talent, whether it's tech or energy industry or otherwise, wants to come work here. And you know, Chase is a big fan of this book, No Rules, Rules by Reed Hastings. He talks a lot about talent density. He's the uh, founder of, of Netflix. Um, we think a lot about talent density here, for sure. Curiosity is kind of a core ingredient of innovation. So we've prided ourselves in trying to be highly innovative and creating new solutions for the industry. And then I would just say, you know, high integrity and authenticity is pretty important for any leader. And we try to model that in our culture here. There's so many things I love about what you just raised, Cully, because as I'm working on this extended conversation about how traditional oil and gas companies prepare for the energy transition, they have this culture clash between the old guard and in some cases, if they're trying to build new energies business, the new guard. Um, And you are doing that in real time with, as you said, these three different workforces, the oil and gas, the tech and the finance. So let me, and and one other thing I just want to flag because it was a re- recurring theme when I interviewed Dominic Emery of BP, that, that they are really trying to solve for curiosity in their talent selection. And I think that is such a exciting development in how we think about and nurture our workforce and for our audience, our oil and gas workforce. So um, Chase, let me kick it back to you as you're thinking about developing these very different cultures, but also having a cohesive team. What what do you look for in your employees? And um, how how do you solve for these differences in, in these different types of workforce? Sure. I think we really try to create a a super inclusive culture. And, you know, I I think, you know, having that open mindedness to to be inclusive of everyone from, you know, very, very, you know, diverse backgrounds, whether it's, you know, someone that's spent 20 years working in the oil field or uh, someone that's, you know, just graduated, you know, from a top university in distributed systems, like uh, those two different, those two different employees can contribute and innovate in very, very different ways. And we actually find that by having very, very diverse knowledge sets, that's where the biggest innovations can actually take place. Uh, you know, the idea of, you know, capturing flare gas to 
power distributed computing systems, mine digital currency, and you know, power the future of you know artificial intelligence research isn't something that sort of naturally comes together from one very specific background. It really requires that that diverse knowledge set. And so we actually have a we actually have a company value that really celebrates this. And that value is to cultivate an idea mer- or cultivate an idea meritocracy is one of them, uh, as well as tapping into the collective genius is a second second value that we have that that really just encourages people to contribute from all different angles. You know, innovation sort of takes place at sort of the edges of, of everything. And uh, I think everybody sort of brings a very, very unique pr- perspective. And so, you know, in the backdrop of this world that seems like increasingly more divided every day, uh, we try to bring in people that 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 want to be inclusive and and want to want to be open-minded around where where ideas can be spawned from and where they can be generated from. It's such a Interesting idea that I think we can translate into some more traditional oil and gas companies of this idea of tapping into the collective genius because it creates a common destination to help transcend maybe some of these political and generational divides that we have within our organizations and, of course, within our culture. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit and ask you guys about how all the changes in ESG are changing you. I imagine a few years ago, you, you were focused on solving a flare issue, but today your customers and your investors want to talk and think about ESG. How does that change how you think about transparency, how you think about your value value proposition for your clients and investors? Yeah, it's it's very core for us. For me, it goes way back to kind of my early days and in, in early days of my career. So I grew up in an oil and gas family background, went to a college in Vermont that was very environmentally and climate focused. And in my career started off in renewable energy. And I've actually gone back and forth between renewable energy and oil and gas in my career. Um, and I've always kind of weighed the the two elements of the societal benefit of abundant low cost energy against the the climate impact of that energy source. And so it's it's like right front and center part of the conversation for us at Crusoe. Um, and it's I think it's the most interesting and difficult challenge in the energy industry is balancing the economic benefits and human prosperity benefits with the climate and environmental side. Uh, and so we think about that a lot. You know, in terms of the transparency side around ESG and the value proposition, for sure we see that a lot of the, the clients that we work with, oil and gas companies, are really elevating. ESG metrics and transparency. So for example, many of our publicly traded clients, things like flare, flared gas as a percentage of total gas volumes, that gets tracked and reported through quarterly investor materials. That is often a, a management compensation metric that they're, they're, the whole executive team's compensation is tied to. We see you know, methane intensity as a key metric. You had Scott Sheffield on the podcast a few weeks ago. He talked about Pioneer's goals to reduce their methane intensity, I think, by more than 50%. And eventually, you know, he's stated a goal of trying to get to, to carbon neutral by 2050. So you see these kinds of statements coming from the, the leaders and the large public companies. And the private equity is certainly following that. Um, maybe it's one step behind, but it's catching up quickly, I would say. And then, you know, what we what it does for us as Crusoe is we want to help solve that problem around how energy is currently produced, reduce its environmental impact. So for us, that means as long as the world demands 100 million barrels of oil per day, let's make sure we produce that without flaring a lot of gas, wasting a lot of energy, and re- releasing a lot of methane to the atmosphere. That to us is just the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's the highest sort of environmental ROI per dollar you can invest. 
And we can also do it in a way that's economic with our technology. Um, but we also need to be investing in accelerating the energy transition. So for us, that means you know, renewably powered projects where our deployment of data centers can be a catalyst to either build a new renewable power plant or support the economics in a unique way of an existing, often an older renewable generation asset. And so our strategy is very much around like moving the needle for producing more renewables and driving that needle forward while also mitigating the impacts of the existing system. That's sort of how we see our, our role in, on the ESG spectrum. Yeah, it's really interesting, this idea of being able to address the intermittency problems and the, and some of the economic problems through ha- having um, Crusoe systems deployed in ways that can make those systems more economic or more flexible. I think that's re- so interesting. Let's talk about that, how, how you guys are evolving. Because this idea, I'm really enamored with this idea of tapping into the collective genius. And I'm wondering if there's systems or processes you put in place with your teams to cultivate innovation, to bring forth new ideas, to have a space where I don't know what your approach to failure is, but where, where there's where there is a lot of ideas and, and not all of them are going to be great. How do you deal with that within your culture? And do you do it in a formal way or is it very ad hoc? Um, I, I think it's much more ad hoc. I, I think I think it's kind of one of these things where, you know, actions speak louder than words a little bit. So, you know, we've had, you know, individual cases where, you know, uh, someone will just have an idea and it will, you know, creating a company that can elevate ideas that come from any part of the organization into like, oh, this is actually a great idea. We should be like spending time and resources like committed towards this, no matter where it came from. Um, I think really, you know, people seeing those types of ideas and, and seeing them getting celebrated in public really sort of empowers people to be like, oh, wow, like, you know, so-and-so had that idea. Like, I thought they were, you know, this low on the totem pole, but they can like create this huge impact at the company. Um, that's pretty cool. And uh, and I think just sort of witnessing it, you know, happen in action really enables employees to really feel empowered around uh, contributing towards the uh, innovation that's taking place here at the company. Mm, I really like that. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. So I'm curious, you guys are growing incredibly fast. You're evolving incredibly fast. What do you see as your biggest culture challenge within the company with, with as leaders to, to building and growing this ama- amazing adaptive machine? Yeah, this is one of the interesting challenges and opportunities we have. You know, we mentioned we're, we're drawing on two really different workforces, maybe three, between energy and tech. And then we, we increasingly have more kind of a specialized finance function in the company too. So I remember early on when we were starting the company, that first year, Chase and I were both living out in California. My wife was going to business school where you went to business school, Tisha, which is Stanford Business School. And so I was living down in Palo Alto and we were starting a company in places like Williston and uh, the Powder River Basin. And that year I flew 88 times. I remember because I counted at the end of the year and I flew between San Francisco, Palo Alto and like Williston. And it was during... Unfortunately, don't have a direct flight yet. You know, we're, yeah. we have a lot of people that are on that route. We're hoping the airlines pick up on it soon and, and add that route. But uh, to date, they, ha- they haven't done it yet. And, and that was also when a bunch of, you know, political election stuff was kicking off. And it just, it felt like a 
a totally unique perspective on American culture and politics at that time, where it was kind of going between the two extremes. And, and the stereotypes definitely do get exaggerated. I think most people are not as extreme as the media would want everyone to believe, but there is some truth to it. And, and so one of the challenges we had is how do you bring these two groups together and get them on the same page, working towards the same mission? And our approach early on was just, listen, we really are a mission-driven company. Let's talk about what that mission is and why it matters. And so for the for the folks in the oil field, we had some very direct conversations about the way that we view climate and climate change. And to the extent there was any skepticism, we advocated for our view and explained why. You know, I, I'm a geologist originally. I made some you know sort of comments to the effect of, look, when I look through the geologic record, I see that the last five major extinctions on Earth were caused when the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere changed by more than a thousand parts per million in less than a million years. Uh, we're adding one part per million or two per year right now. Uh, so, you know, four out of five, that's an 80% correlation. That's probably a risk we don't want to take. We should probably try to find a way to solve that and avoid that. And on the other side of the equation, if you believe that, that there's some kind of like a political reason why the world is not 100% renewably powered right now, that's wrong. There's a huge amount of financial and industrial inertia that needs to be adjusted over a long period of time to actually have an energy transition. It's like trillions of dollars and and generations of effort and investment required to build the first energy system, it's going to be on that order of magnitude to transition to a new energy system. And that that's just not something that happens fast. We need to acknowledge that for the time being, oil is essential. It is the largest source of energy that humans have and depend on uh, to keep 7 billion of us alive. And so we're going to keep producing that. And we need to keep producing that. We just need to do it as cleanly and efficiently as possible for as long as we do depend on it like that. And you know, do not villainize this industry. Actually, every day this industry wakes up and goes to work, it saves your life. So there, there sort of had to be a, a tough conversation or um, a setting of the record straight, maybe on both sides. And through that, we ended up in a place where everybody can really buy into what we're trying to do here. I think at the end of the day, everybody can buy into let's kill the flares and do something economically beneficial with them. That is like a mission and an objective that both sides have been able to get on board with. So as the company continues to grow, I imagine the staff will be more diverse in every way. You will continue to have to probably create dynamic engagement around these these challenges. Have you seen any surprising examples of where bringing together these diverse sides brought a solution that you wouldn't have anticipated? So, you know, some way that that one group incorporated ideas for another and then you had a solution in the field or a solution in the office. Yeah, so I, I can think of one that, you know, was kind of unique. We had a we had a system in place, you know, our, our mechanics team, uh, you know, they're you know, primary goal is to make sure that all of our equipment is running at all times, which means, you know, this doesn't mean, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday, this means 24, seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And as a result of that, you know, we have mechanics that are on call throughout throughout the period, just checking in on things. And if we have an interruption in the middle of the night or a gas line freezes up, we, you know, we have uh, guys that, you know, get in their truck and they drive out to the field and they, you know, go and resolve that issue and, and kind of fight that fire. And uh, so our, our initial system that we had in place was, you know, was implemented by the mechanics team and they, they had a, uh, uh, they had a system where a person that was on call would wake up every hour throughout the night and then go onto our dashboard and check to make sure everything was operating. 
And, uh, you know, we had our, uh, our, our software engineering team going out to Williston and kind of, you know, shadowing the mechanics team. And, you know, they were like, wait, what? You wake up every single hour? Like, even if nothing's wrong, this is insane. Like, you know, you're not going to get any sleep when you're on call. This is like highly disruptive. So we were implement, we were able to implement sort of a software-based solution that, you know, was able to sort of you know, set alarms when, when various things would go off and, you know, our, our on-call mechanics would be able to sort of get a good night's rest uh, on nights where, where we didn't have any issues and, you know, they'd get woken up in, in the case that we did actually have a real issue that, that they had to address. So that was, that was I kind love of, love it. Nothing uh, like a good night's sleep to build rapport. <laughs> yeah, highly underrated. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that, that is really neat. I'm curious, Coley, um, you, your team probably like every other company is under internal and external pressure to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in your, in your staff and in your work. How is that playing a role in, in how you're growing and how you see your team developing? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a focus and it's been interesting, um, especially in the tech industry. This is a, this has really become a huge focus. It is in the energy industry as well, but in, in the tech industry, when we're recruiting software engineers, for example, we'll even get comments like, I'm looking at the website and I would really like to see more, more women in positions of management at your company. Um, that's like an important thing to me. And what, what are you doing about that as a company? And we, we definitely hear that feedback and, and we've been working really hard on that. Um, we've we've recently onboarded a number of executive women in executive positions. And at this point, we're proud that we've got women at every level of the company from C-suite, VPs, directors, managers. There's definitely a lot more to do there. I think we taking an honest view of the energy industry and the tech industry, the pool of candidates is is heavily skewed. We do see that early on as a as a tech startup, you're really just trying to vacuum up as much talent as you can. And so you're you're interested in in getting candidates to apply. And early on, many of those candidates were men and primarily white or Asian men. And that's just kind of a, a demographic bias within the energy industry and the tech industry. As we've gotten bigger and our brand has matured to the point where we're now that talent magnet where people are coming to us and we can be more choosy, um, it's become easier to force DEI into the process. So for example, one of the things we do is the Rooney rule. So for any senior level position, we make sure that in the interview process, people from diverse backgrounds must be interviewed before we make a decision. That may, we may or may not hire those people, but there has to be a part of the process where um, gender diversity and racial diversity is considered before making a selection, especially the senior position in the company. Yeah, that's such a good point that you may call it because I didn't name that as a driver, but that actually um, in the talent that we're all trying desperately to recruit right now, their expectations are actually a, a new significant driver of, of what they want to see in companies where they're going to go work. So um, that, that's the kind of thing. It really, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen on accident. You know, early on, when we're sort of building the foundation of the company. We we're just trying to survive on a day-to-day basis. You know, we were a startup and trying to operate lean. And I think it was something that we didn't pay enough attention to early on, just candidly. And I think, you know, recognizing some of the early missteps um, on, on that front, and not, not investing enough into it early on. Um, I think if we could do over again, I, th- I think we probably would have, you know, implemented some of these things that we've, we've recognized now. And um, I think, I think, uh, it's it's been a, a big commitment for us as an organization at the senior leadership level. That makes a lot of sense. And and I think it's really important, especially as companies are investing in, in thinking about the energy transition, that this is going to be a really key recruiting tool as well. So yeah, thank you. So Chase, I'd love to um, get your thoughts on how you think about 
where to invest, where to do um, new business, where to invest in new business lines or participate in R&D. What's the way that you put things through, uh, th- through that you discern between opportunities? Sure. So I, I think our core guiding principle in, in the way we approach innovation and investment for the future of our company is really driven by, you know, our, our mission of aligning the future of computing with the future of the climate. And so, you know, I, I think as a business, I think we've, we've sort of, when we evaluate the full computing life cycle and value chain, um, I think we view huge opportunities in, in being able to incrementally vertically integrate uh, components of that. And uh, we try to we try to take an incrementalist approach to a lot of those uh, you know steps in innovation where it's like we, we you know there's this area of the value chain that you know we we rely on through some third party group. What would it look like for us to do that in house? And you know does it make sense today? Do we want to make that investment today? Like what is what is the margin recapture in the full life cycle of computing look like? And you know I think we've 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 taken that approach with a number of different things. You know we we started the business around vertically integrating the power production piece. Um, uh, where you know we would generate our own power to power our own data centers, and you know that's that's one of the biggest costs, um, ongoing operating costs for uh, for a data center provider, and you know that gave us a great competitive advantage early on. But you know, we've incrementally gone down uh, other aspects of other areas that we can vertically integrate. You know, unique tools that we can kind of build that incrementally add you know bigger bigger value capture in the overall uh, chain there. And then, you know, the, the other big aspect is like, do we have the right people to do it? Right. So it's like, what is the, what is the opportunity and like, who do we need in place to actually execute on that opportunity? And, and so, you know, I think early on, I think, you know, the first year or so it was, it was kind of just me and Coley running the company. And uh, so we were kind of doing everything. And as we've grown, I think, you know, 50 percent or more of my time now is spent recruiting, right? It's not about like what I'm contributing. It's about who we're bringing in to uh, service uh, specific, you know, functional areas of expertise. And, you know, there's people at the company that are way more knowledgeable than me or Coley at, you know, their specific domains. And we really rely on, on getting really top talent into those, into those seats that, that open up those new opportunities for us. That's a really great point and very relevant to companies thinking about how they're going to to pursue new business lines or amended business lines going forward. All right, Kelly, I want to put you on the spot for an awkward question and you don't have to name, in fact, don't name any names, but you do a lot of work with oil and gas companies and because they are our primary audience, I'm interested in your opinion on where you see perhaps the need for companies to be more flexible in how they work with companies like yours or take advantage of energy transition or emissions reductions opportunities. Do you see some opportunities that might be relevant for our listeners to think about how to be more flexible in this kind of work? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think there is a natural combination between the large oil and gas companies and startups. And and really that is that the startups can bring a lot of the fresh ideas and the innovation if you can allow them a place to sort of incubate or, or pilot or demonstrate their technology. And maybe the key there, the key difference is there, there might need to be sort of a lighter weight, easier onboarding process for a startup than for like a large at scale service provider, right? The, the way you onboard a drilling contractor is probably going to be different, or in my view, probably should be different than the way you would interact with a startup that has five employees. Early on at Crusoe, I think one of the great benefits of working with the oil industry is that everything is at scale. And so usually startups are struggling to find scale. 
in the oil industry, it's like you need to be at much larger scale to even matter for us. So scale is like de facto. If we get this right and we do this, it's going to be huge. It's going to be at scale. But it's how do you get from the starting point where you have you know a seed investment check and you need to do something at a small scale to prove it so you can get the next round of funding and the next round of funding and, and translate from connecting those points to the large scale deployments that we're now doing where we're, we really are solving millions of cubic feet of, of gas per day at a location, at many locations at the same time. You know, we have an employee base of now over 135 people. We had to do a lot to get from the starting point to here. And there were some oil companies that were able to engage with us. And there were some where, frankly, their culture didn't allow for it very effectively. And I would say that, I don't know, if there's a piece of advice, it's there's a lot of value in, in startups. They bring really great disruptive and cool ideas that can change things and can matter. But don't stifle that with an overly bureaucratic process. Allow, allow a space in a way, maybe a different on-ramp for those companies to interact with your company. That's really creative and makes a lot of sense because companies have got, now they have so many reporting, supply chain reporting requirements, but that doesn't allow for this kind of uh, flexible engagement and low-hanging fruit engagement because a startup can't spend a year getting onboarded <laughs> through somebody's health and safety system. That's really interesting. Okay, I have one more question for each of you. So, um, Chase, I'm just going to ask you, what advancements are you excited about? What are you looking toward that you're optimistic about that you might foreshadow for us? Uh, things that you and that Crusoe may be doing in the coming years? Sure. You know, I, I think uh, the thing that I, I would highlight here, just you know, if I had to pick one, is what we're doing on the computing side and, and sort of the future that we're trying to build there. You know, we started the business with a big focus around digital currency mining, a number of unique characteristics that that made it fit very, very well. And the fact that it's um, highly interruptible, you know, it's not super bandwidth constrained um, and just fit very well for, for us getting started in, in this digital flare mitigation solution. Uh, but what we've built as a team is, you know, as we, as we sort of advanced our our growth is we, we've built actually this low cost, high performance computing cloud product where we can actually co-locate data centers on site that um, are powering, you know, this amazing, incredible future of innovation, uh, ranging from, you know, the next generation of artificial intelligence algorithms that you know, are powering things like uh, natural language processing, chatbots, uh, computer vision approaches, self-driving cars, you know, just these amazing technological innovations um, that are going to fundamentally transform and uplift human quality of life. And, you know, we can really be the workhorse engine that that's enabling that future in a low cost and environmentally compliant capacity. So uh, to me, I think one of our big driving forces uh, as a business, and one of the things that I think has made us really, really successful to date is trying to get interest alignment between doing good and doing something that's economic. So in this case of the cloud computing product, you know, we really see this niche in the marketplace to, to provide a, both a computing solution that's, that's lower cost than any existing large scale cloud computing provider, but it's also, you know, much cleaner uh, in the sense that it, it creates this massive emissions reduction through digital flare mitigation. Oh, that's, it really is exciting when you talk about it. Uh, in those big terms, Coley, so you get the last word here. And I'm just curious with all the challenges that a company like yours faces as it's growing, what values do you turn to as a leader? What keeps you going? And how are you evolving to meet the ever increasing responsibilities that you have? Well, um, that's a that's a good question. It's an easy one for us to answer because we have 
five very unique uh, sort of quirky company values. And I can tell you what they are, um, but they are the things that we turn to. So it's it's the one that we're probably most famous for, at least internally, the, the one that gets kind of talked about and celebrated the most is think like a mountaineer. Uh, so this, this one has to do with you know, planning, backup plans, safety, being a, a master of your tools, and um, intense preparation. But the other, the other four, which we already touched on some of them, cultivate an idea meritocracy, tap into the collective genius, relentless commitment to resource efficiency, and be and become your best self. They're all on our website. We've got all this detail behind it. So it's not your traditional sort of four or five company values that you, you kind of pick out of the, the standard selection of 10 options. We really thought about this. Chase has you know, climbed Mount Everest. I, I love climbing mountains also. And we you know, from the origin story of the company, we, we started the company on a mountain climbing trip. We wanted that to be one of our core values. And sort of for each of these, there was a, a reason why. But, you know, your question on like when, when things are unclear or difficult, what do you turn to? These have been very helpful. And the way we communicate to the team is if you have to make a decision, you don't know which way to go. In the absence of any other way to analyze the problem, just ask what these five core values would tell you to do. And if you make that decision in line with those five core values, then it's really not going to be one that we're going to criticize. It may or may not be the right answer in the end, but we can understand the, the sort of rationale if it's in line with the five core values. And as the company scales, Chase and I don't have the opportunity to talk one-on-one with every employee on a daily basis anymore. And so we really rely on those core values to be the thing that stitches the company together and creates that cohesive decision-making framework. That is scalable. Like Our time and communication is not scalable necessarily uh, in the way that the values and everyone embodies them is scalable. And they can sort of teach each other. I love that because we often talk to with our, our audience here about the importance of authentic values driving culture as opposed to, you know, some values that they live on a piece of paper or painted on a wall. So you two have very consistently referred to your company values as guiding lights. And that may be one of the most important lessons that uh, listeners can take away from how their companies are thinking about embarking upon big changes in support of the energy transition. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Chase and Cully for taking the time to share their insights uh, with all of us. So the game-changing insight for me today was really this idea of companies needing to be a magnet for talent. I end up in a lot of conversations about how difficult it is to recruit and retain talent. And we think about these as sort of pipelines and exercises. Takeaway for me is that we really need to be spending more time thinking about our culture and are we creating a company that is a magnet for talent. I'd love to hear about what you think was uh, game-changing and I would love for you to take a second and rate the podcast as well. Uh, if you'd like to know more about our work at Adam and Team, visit us at energythinks.com. Thanks to Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>